Hi, I'm Erica Keslin. Welcome to Left to Our Own Devices, a show that explores how to bring our human to work and to life. Because left to our own devices, we're not connecting. Today, my guest is Amy Gallo. Amy is a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review and the co-host of HBR's Women at Work podcast. Amy speaks and writes frequently about conflict, communication, and workplace dynamics. She is the author of the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict and has a new book coming out later this year called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. Amy lives in Providence, Rhode Island with her husband and teenage daughter. Amy, thank you so much for being on the show. I know that everybody these days is dealing with tons of conflict, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts. So, Amy, it is so good to finally see you here. Yes, you too, Erica. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to dig in. I'm a big fan. I listen to your podcast, so I feel like it's quite an honor to to have you on mine. We're going to talk about conflict and disagreeing in the workplace, which in this new world of work is taking on so many additional meetings. So my first question, just to jump right in, is you wrote an article in HBR in 2018 called Why We Should Be Disagreeing More at Work. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us why and what are some of the benefits of disagreeing at work? Yeah. So that article, I have to say, is one of the ones I get asked about most. It was an incredibly popular article at the time, and it still continues to get traffic. I think it feels counterintuitive to a lot of people because we're so focused on getting along with other people at work. Mm-hmm. But, and actually, as someone who wrote a book about conflict, I you would think I would be called into organizations that are having a ton of conflict, that there's, you know, fights and people just exploding at each other. But I'm often called into organizations where the opposite is happening, where there's not enough disagreeing. So leaders are frustrated that there's not enough innovation, that people aren't challenging the status quo, Mm. aren't introducing new ideas. They know that people disagree with them as leaders or with their peers, but aren't expressing that. And that leads to what Patrick Lencioni, the author of The Five Dysfunctions of Teams, calls artificial harmony. So it's this idea Uh that we look like we're getting along, we're all nodding and agreeing, but then there's this sort of simmering tension or resentment that's underneath the surface that never comes up or comes up sideways. And right. you you have these big explosions. Well, I wanted I wanted I just thought of something and and this this could be for a whole other kind of kind of podcast, but when you were talking, I was equating it to like when like people that get divorced, right? Like sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're getting divorced. It seems like they never fight. And I remember my, my parents got divorced when I was 10. I'm thinking, wow, I never really saw them fight. But to your point, like it takes energy to fight and to want to get to a better outcome. And is there's, what was the word used? Artificial harmony, harmony which clearly exactly. must've been going on in my house. Again, <laughs> this could right. be for a more therapy related podcast, but I bet there's something to that. Yeah, well, and I think you you it's the same idea, which is that it the, you need trust in order to have disagreements. You need to respect the other person in order to verse, voice your disagreement. You need to have a sense of belonging and safety. And when you don't have those things, whether it's in a marriage or on a team, 
it's going to look like everything's fine because disagreements aren't coming up, but things often are very, very wrong. And you're not going to get all of the benefits of disagreeing, you know, innovation, what Linda Hill at, at Harvard Business School calls creative friction, right? That right. comes with you and I disagree. We're going to come up with a better idea if we surface our underlying assumptions, if we articulate our point of view, if we go to bat for our, our ideas and then collaborate and, and integrate each of our ideas into something better, right? We get better work outcomes. We also tend to have stronger relationships because to disagree, you need to have trust. You you really, once you actually have disagreed, you do have a conflict and you've worked through it, you've set the precedent that our relationship will survive even if we disagree, even if we go to bat about that project plan or whose idea is better or what resources our team should get versus your team. Once we've done that and we get through it, it's now we've got that that idea that, okay, we can disagree and it'll be fine. So there's there are lots of lots of benefits. And and, you know, another one also is of more inclusive work environment. We have seen I'm sure you've seen this in the organizations you work with, too. Tons of time and effort and resources put into bringing people from different backgrounds with different viewpoints, perspectives, experiences into a workplace. But if you bring them into a team and then you say, oh, by the way, we don't disagree here, right? you're going to get none of the benefit. And you're basically asking them to then adhere to the current norm. So, you know, a lot of my friends who focus on DEI, you know, we talk about how Having difficult conversations, having disagreements are table stakes when it comes to trying to create inclusive work environments. Mm-hmm. So two things jump out with what you're saying. Number one, I, I agree. And it's reminding me, after I wrote Bring Your Human to Work, I did a trip out to Microsoft, who I profile in the book. And a big part of what Satya Nadella wanted to do when he got to Microsoft was to improve diversity and inclusion. And as a way to bring to life your values, not just have them sit on the walls, but bring them to life in the halls. A piece of what some of the leaders talked about was, we expect you to push back in meetings and really trying to take a very big picture concept and 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 push it down to give people some very actionable things to do. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's it's amazing how difficult it is to push back in meetings, right? I mean, especially if we think about this virtual environment that so many of us are working in, the effort it takes to interrupt someone to say, hold on, wait, can we pause here? Like, I, I see it differently. It, it takes so much more. You can't catch someone's eye out of, out, you know, in someone across the room. It's, you know, it can feel more con- confrontational because when you're looking at a screen, you're making an abnormal amount of eye contact. Right. Whereas if you're in a conference room, you're sort of looking off to the side. You can look at the clock. You can look at a paper. You know, it's the stakes feel much higher and it just feels harder, I think, to push back. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember, we're all wired as humans to get along. Like that's how, you know, we survived in tribes and groups. And so disagreeing can feel like a rupture to that harmony, to a sense of camaraderie or teamwork, when actually it's really integral to the work that we do. Right, right. So in a minute, I'll, I'll get to some ways to, to to 
motivate people to do that. And I have mm-hmm. some ideas too, but yeah. But what do you do? Let's say somebody's listening to this and they're saying, okay, I'm I'm hearing the business case for disagreement, mm-hmm. more innovation, DNI, better relationships, these things. Okay, Amy, like got it. But yeah. I don't have that trust on my team. Yeah. I mean, can you build it or are you just out of luck and should start looking for a new job? Well, it depends. I mean, I think you, I'm a big believer in not sort of dismissing people or teams or cultures and just saying it's not possible here, right? I, I, I don't think, I think we often do that a little bit too quickly. And I rather what I want, what I would encourage listeners to do is conduct a few experiments, like, you know, see if you can increase the amount of psychological safety or the amount of trust on the team. You know, if you have a toxic boss, if it's a toxic culture, of course, by all means, accept that as a reality and and figure out how you're going to either disassociate or move on or transfer departments, find a new job, whatever you need to do to protect yourself. But don't immediately decide this isn't going to work. You know, I think you got to try try out a few things. And sometimes it's as simple as like disagree on something low stakes. See, see what happens when mm-hmm. you bring up a different perspective. Even having the conversation, how do we disagree, right? Like, I, I mean, I, I think one of the basic things is as a leader, if, if you haven't said out loud, we will not always see to eye to eye. And I think that is a good thing, right? Say that tomorrow to your team because it, you have to lay the groundwork that disagreement is a normal inevitable part of mm-hmm. other human beings interacting and you're going to it's it's not going to be shut down if it comes up it's going to be if we're going to hear it we're going to listen to it we're going to and setting norms around how do we do that when do we disagree when do we hear different ideas out but then decide okay we disagreed now we're going to commit and move on right what are the what are the norms you want on your team around how people will debate dissent you know have fights good fights not unhealthy ones but good ones how do you want to set those those norms mm-hmm. and you don't have to be the leader on the team necessarily to do that it's helpful it gives you a platform of course gives you the authority but you can also bring it up hey you, one of the things i notice is we don't have norms around how we disagree can i take a stab at writing those and discuss them as a team and just even the response to those sorts of suggestions, I think it's going to give you a lot of clues as to how how these, this kind of work or this kind of interaction is going to be received. Right. Right. Does that help? Erica? Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, I'm, and, and I like how you said it, it seems logical that it's going to be the boss that says it. But I think from a bottom up perspective, if somebody's listening to this, often what I say is go in with data. Hey, I was just listening to this really cool podcast that talked about the benefits, the ROI of disagreeing and was thought, you know, thinking about our team, what does everybody think? Because the good news is, you know, our team's all about innovation and maybe this is something that can help us collectively reach our goals, you know, and leading with some of that, that data, especially when it's something that can, can be political and be tricky and, and be hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is obviously very connected to the the idea of psychological safety and Amy Edmondson's work in that area. And, you know, one of the pillars of psychological safety is candor. And, you know, I think you can think about as a team, like, how candid are we with, with one another? And 
you can look up all, there's tons of tools about how to build psychological safety. One of the things I really have learned from from Amy Edmondson, and I think about a lot, is that it's not something you build and then you're done. It's a constant process to build a psychologically safe environment and to maintain it or yeah. to or or allow that it's going to be broken because it often will someone you know your leader will lose their temper and and you have to recover from that or some big change happens in your industry which causes everyone to sort of batten down the hatches and then you have to rebuild after that whatever it is it's a it's a constant process of trying to make sure we feel psychologically safe and that people are taking the appropriate risks to admit mistakes, to be honest with one another, even when that's those are hard truths. Right. So it's not just a like you create it and it's done. It's it's a it's a continual process of, of making sure we're candid. Have you seen any any fun or really interesting, innovative ways to to promote disagreement? You know, I'm thinking of Again, this is a way to get the bring the values to life. So if if innovation is a is a focus and a value, and we know that more you know disagreements can lead to that, you maybe you've seen companies do you know the biggest and best disagreement of the month, or having a Slack channel that highlights that creative friction. I'm just you know what are some yeah. tangible ideas that that people might be able to bring into their organizations. Yeah, I love both those ideas. And I actually, I've, you've probably heard, as I have, about lots of places that focus on like the biggest failure, right? The, this is, let's celebrate failure. Right. I would love to see organizations celebrating disagreement. And I don't, I, I have not seen many examples of that, but having people say, you know, because one of the things that often happens is people, when tensions come up, because we're so, you know, nervous or we get sort of sensitive around when people disagree, when there's a conflict, you hear the phrase, let's take it offline, right? So people <laughs> start to get into a disagreement, which could be really interesting. And everyone's like, okay, let's take that offline. And you never find out what happened. And I would love, like, wouldn't it be great if the worst, if you decided to take it offline, your responsibility was to come back to the next team meeting and say, here's the fight we had. This, he thought this, I thought this, we thought this, we discussed this, and here's where we ended up. Mm-hmm. Right. And just modeling good conflict resolution right. and like and disagreeing. I would love modeling that. For sure. But you know yeah. what's so funny? I even felt like my body kind of t- tensed up a little bit. Like when you use the word fight, I feel mm-hmm. like no one uses the word fight and workplace. Like we say disagreement, you know, though it's just a softer, but yeah, I mean, do you recommend that people actually call it what it is? I mean, even just when you said that, I was like, oh my gosh, would people ever say, take it offline? Like when you fight, I mean, obviously you think of like a fist fight or something more physical and something that has such negative connotations. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I've actually been asked to come do a talk about conflict in the workplace. And then at the the sponsor who's bringing me in has said, but could you not use the word conflict? <laughs> like, no, I cannot do that, actually. But and and, you know, part of me believes we need to sort of reclaim this language as 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 always negative, like conflict. The, to me, a conflict is when our needs, wants, desires are not aligned aligned and we have to figure out how to align them yeah. or how to get to an answer where at least some of those desires, wants, and needs are met, but maybe not all of them. To me, that doesn't necessarily have to feel violent or upsetting. 
And yet I also want to be sensitive to the fact that for some people, the word fight, like you said, just like, oh, gosh, you know, and in, in fact, you and I met at South by Southwest for the first time in my mm-hmm. session that 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 yeah. year was called Smart Fights. And I really do. I I do believe it's important to sort of push the envelope with this that and I don't want I don't want the language to become an excuse to behave badly, you know, to be candid to the point where you hurt someone's feelings to sort of, to like aggressively promote your idea or your perspective. But I think if we think about maybe it's a word like debate or, you know, something that's like focused on you can have a fight over the ideas that doesn't have to feel personal. So, yeah, I, I think using that language, I'm a big proponent of it. You know, and I also think that that there, you know, some of the things I've seen is just really trying to depersonalize because I think that's that oftentimes it starts to feel personal. Like this right. is about me and whether I'm good at my job or whether I have good ideas or whether I'm a smart leader. Or, and if you can depersonalize it, and I actually have seen teams. There's one team I worked with that had, I think it was a, I can't remember. It was like a stuffed. It was an executive team, and it was a stuffed animal. I think it was a dog or a moose i can't remember but they had this (laughs) stuffed animal and then when someone wanted to raise a disagreement they would throw it in the middle of the table and they'd be like okay like clearly we don't all agree because the the instinct was to believe that if someone's silent they agree right and that's they wanted to fight that tendency that not speaking up was somehow some tacit agreement. Mm-hmm. And so they would throw this stuffed animal on the table and then it would be like, okay, let's open the conversation. Let's stop, open the conversation up. And I think the tactics like that can really work. I've seen teams who, you know, they, they have a rotating role that someone fills, whether it's, you can call it the devil's advocate or the disagreer in chief, right? It's someone who says, okay, we seem to be reaching a conclusion here or we seem to be all coming to consensus, but let's stop. What does our disagreeer in chief say mm-hmm. about what what topics we're missing? Where are our blind spots? What haven't we raised? What risks aren't we seeing? And that can spur another conversation to make sure, again, that that people aren't just sitting there silent. And And sometimes it's not even about fear. I think we talk a lot about not disagreeing because we're afraid of the consequences. But sometimes, I, at least for me, I can say it's sometimes when the thought's not fully formed. I'm not sure yet how passionately I right. feel about it. Right. Although if you preface it with devil's advocate, maybe you can take the pressure off. But so the, so you have a podcast, you know, it's about women, women at work. Yeah. And what I was thinking when you were talking about this depersonalization, I mean, men and women fight very differently. So you know, how does your, how does gender come into your thinking about disagreeing at work? I mean, look, it's a generalization, but many women have a, have, have trouble, myself included. I'll put myself in that bucket um, at times trying to depersonalize and then not take it personally. Yeah. I mean, I think what, what we know from the research is that, and I think this plays a big role in and whether and how we disagree when it comes down to gender is that when women advocate on behalf of themselves or are like what's called in the lit- literature agentic, which just means assertive, right, that they tend to be penalized for doing so. So like classic example of like negotiating for salary, women who negotiate for their salary in these experiments are shown to 
the men and women who are on the receiving end of that negotiation are more likely to report not wanting to work with her. Mm -hmm. Whereas if a man negotiates his salary, there's no impact on how likely someone is to want to work with them. So we know that women tend to be punished or penalized for advocating. Fights and disagreements and all of that is that that's about advocating. That's about asserting yourself. And you and therefore there's there is some evidence or there's some, you know, logic to the idea that women would hold back more. And I think there's also the stakes are higher for women in terms of if we think about the double bind, which is that to be trusted, you have to be both competent and warm and that women really can't. What we know from research is that women, those things tend to be at opposite ends of the spectrum for a woman. Right. Right. And so that makes it even more difficult to to advocate for yourself, to disagree, to Mm -hmm. to to assert your your viewpoint on something. But that's that's why it's so imperative that leaders acknowledge that we are going to have disagreements. This isn't about whether Erica's idea is better or Amy's idea is better. It's about coming up with the best idea. So you sort of try to pull away from it it being associated with someone's worth or value and focus more on what's the worth or value of that idea or what's the right answer that we come up with. I think it could be interesting going back to this, like, how do we actually do this in practice? Like, you know, imagine again, if you're at a company where innovation and these things are just so important and you're not seeing as much disagreement as one would want, knowing the correlations that you talk about. And, you know, a leader could say, all right, you know what, we have 10 more minutes this meeting and like, we're not leaving till someone, there has to be one disagreement per meeting, you know, or, (laughs) or something to at least get people thinking about if I wasn't to disagree, what I disagree with to, to get some of that creative friction to, to Mm -hmm. get to the best idea. So yeah. Yeah. Really. And really interesting. And even, yeah, and even at the end of the, like with those ten minutes, I mean, those ten minutes could also be, what's one idea you've been hesitant to raise, right? Can you raise that now? But this yep. is a safe space to do that, like, or, or I've I've actually seen leaders who say like, now's time for half baked ideas. So instead Ooh. of have your idea doesn't have to be fully formed, let's throw out the half baked ideas right now, and that will sort of generate some of the. And oftentimes those are things that people might be a little bit touchier or more sensitive and so giving people the permission like bring it out now i think is a is a really great that could be a new that could be a ritual right we come back into the off we're going to talk about returning to the office next but you return to the office on wednesdays we bring in ben and jerry's has a flavor called half baked we bring in our ben (laughs) our ben and jerry's half baked and i want to hear a half baked idea from everybody but i think you're right it's about being intentional and making it safe and even making it fun. I mean, yeah. that's how yes. we can put on our boxing gloves and uh, yeah, exactly. And, well, and, and that's yeah. And, and actually, I, I, I've, I've heard. I haven't worked with this team, but I've heard of a team that does have boxing gloves that they actually pass around for that disagreeer in chief role. So, like the person, they have to hold the boxing gloves if that's if that's their role. And I love you know working that into your work around rituals is making disagreeing. A ritual, like it, because it's. Let's do it. Yeah, I mean, I I worked with this this large pharmaceutical company that was desperate to get new ideas, innovation, and they the senior leaders were just they lamented. They're like, we're not hearing anything, and we know from the employee surveys that people feel hesitant to speak up, and we don't understand why. And they said, we keep asking, we keep trying to make it safe, 
And what you heard from the people when when we talked to the people who are further down in the organization is like, yeah, they mentioned once something about disagreeing, but they didn't, re- you know, and I do think it's a drumbeat. You have to keep saying. Yeah. And you have to create, like, it's not enough to say at the end of every meeting, by the way, let's disagree next time, but like actually creating the space. This is the 10 minutes in which we're going to do it. This yeah. is the Wednesday where the, our Ben and Jerry's half-baked flavor. We're going to do this, right? Making this is the dedicated time. Yeah. Really, yeah. I think we'll encourage left to our more. own devices. We may not disagree, so let's exactly uh, let's let's be intentional. All right, so I got to tell you, Amy, that there is a lot of conflict going on right now in the world of work. My clients, people, their heads are spinning. Yeah, they need you, and they need this book. What I'm hearing, no surprise, I'm sure to many people listening, is that the the big conflict is I've gotten used to working from home. I'm more, quote unquote, productive at home, yet my boss wants me to come into the office. And there are just some major conflicts. So, you know, what? what's your recommendation on how to handle it? And I guess I'd love your perspective, both from a top-down and from a bottom-up perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the top-down perspective first, because I think there is this and knee jerk is a little dismissive, but there's this instinctive reaction of like, okay, we can be back in the office. We should be back in the office. But it you, and I'm not telling anyone anything they don't know, but it, you need to be crystal clear about why you actually want people back. What is it? What purpose is it serving for the organization, for them as employees? You know, and, and I think if you're going it, to, it's going, people have gotten used to you know, being able to pick up their kids from from school at the bus stop or whatever it is, you're you're asking them to disrupt a routine that they've gotten used to, and as you say, have been able to do their jobs just as well. But if you're going to try to convince them to come back to the office, give them a reason, a really solid reason as, as to why. Now, you will have people who won't want to come back, and that's going to create tension. And so then you have to decide what is the policy that we feel comfortable creating? What's the logic behind it? And how how many exceptions are we going to make? Because I think that's right. the other issue is that we want everyone in the office three days a week. But what are you going to what when are you going to make exceptions? What is that that going to going to look like? So that, you know, from the top down perspective, I think that conflict, you can avoid that by being very clear about the why, and giving people an upside for coming in. And given what the labor market looks like right now, I would be very hesitant to enforce something that's going to make a lot of people unhappy. Yeah. There, people are willing to, to leave over this issue, and, and a lot have. So that that's sort of from the leadership perspective, how, I, how I've been thinking about it. From If you're the individual who's like, I have no interest in going back to the office, and they're starting to roll out these you know, rules and policies, I, you know, I think it's worth going to your manager and explaining the reasoning behind why you want to stay home, what, where you're flexible. Because I, I, the other thing I think there's this big fear is that, you know, there'll be no collaboration, there'll be no innovation if we're not in the same space, there'll be no, we're going to lose our culture if there's no in-person work. And you, I think with any conflict, I always encourage people to try experiments. I mentioned this earlier. Mm-hmm. If Can you propose an experiment to your boss and say, 
you know, I know you want us in five days a week. Can we try for a month what it looks like if I'm in two days a week or three days a week or, you know, that I come in one week and not the next or whatever it is you want? Can we just try that out for a month and see how it how it works? Because I I know you have these goals and I have these other goals. And I think we can meet both of those sets of goals with this approach. And then you then you have data from which to I mean, I think a lot of people part of the problem is they're working in the absence of data. They're like, we we had a better culture when we were in person. It's like, well, what are you basing that on? Right. What have you seen around these conflicts with your clients? Like what's actually worked or what what's at issue? And I, I agree with what you're saying about, you know, leading with with you know some of the the data around why. Right. You've got to not only look at where, when, who comes back to the office, but why, and not just be blindly saying, okay, we're coming back to the office just because that's the way we always did it. Mm-hmm. That is a recipe for resentment mm-hmm. <laughs> in many ways. But what I'm seeing, and I'm curious to, to your reaction to this, is, you know, this, because this conflict is something that is so, seems to be heightened, and everybody and their brother has opinions on it, and it's, and there's stress around it. I also think that some of the, the reading I've been doing is that it's now become a habit that we're at home. And as we know, changing anything that's a habit takes time. So one of the things that I've been saying to people, and maybe I should have waited until we spoke, but is, you know, giving your opinion, your thoughts and, and, but, but approaching it through the lens of, of vulnerability, meaning this is what we're going to try. And this is what I'd like for you to do. But realize I don't have, none of us have all the answers. And I think that seems to take it down a level from a temperature perspective when you say, look, we might have to take three steps forward, one step back. And we've already seen it with all these variants. So to try to take the pressure off what is such a heated, intense, like talk about boxing gloves. People are going in, they're going crazy and saying, mm-hmm. okay, you know what? You got to have some some flexibility in there. But I think this vulnerability piece from the manager saying, look, I I think I know what is going to work, but I may not have all the answers. Yeah. Well, and that's a key part of going back to psychological safety. Like right. one of the big things that, that experts in psychological safety recommend is focusing on learning versus execution. So rather ah, than being certain, like right? Yeah. Yep. So rather than being certain, like we need to be in the office three days a week if we're going to blah, blah, you know, whatever, meet our goals. Instead of saying, like, you you know, with some vulnerability saying, I'm not sure what the right answer is. I don't know what's going to happen a month from now, six months <laughs> right. from now. Right. Let's be honest about how clueless we all are. That said, I'd like to to see what happens if we try being in the office for three days a week. And, and I'm going to keep the lines of communication open. I want to hear your feedback. But I'm just asking you, can we try this and see what we learn along the way? And really focus on what are we learning as a team, as individuals, as an organization about when it matters that we're in, how we collaborate, how we communicate, what, how does it change things? Because we, the truth is none of us know, like, what is the right thing. And it's going to be different for, for every organization. Right. You know, the other concept that comes up, just thinking about these leaders who are struggling with this, is this concept of process fairness, which is... Like there's been studies done around layoffs, for example, and how people respond to being laid off. And there tends to be much less severe reaction or negative reaction 
if they believe there was process fairness. So if they believe the criteria was clear, people were informed in, a, in a, an appropriate way, they were given appropriate severance, et cetera. So I think you, when you're thinking about implementing or rolling out these new hybrid work plans or return to the office plans is think about that process fairness, like what in explaining why did you make the decision you did? What criteria did you consider? What Mm -hmm. options did you consider? How long is this process or policy going to be in place? What feedback mechanisms are there? Like just being just over communicating around it, I think, is really important right Right. now. I I could talk about this all day. So I I have one more (laughs) question on the on the conflict piece. Yeah. which is as we have more meetings and more structure where we're hybrid. So we have some people sitting around a table and some people remote. I mean, mm-hmm. it is hard enough to manage conflict and be willing to put yourself out there to disagree when everybody's remote or everybody's in person. But, you know, do you have a couple of tips? I mean, how do you do this when it's when it's a mixed bag? Yeah. I mean, this is where rituals will come in really help, you know, handy, as will norms, right? Just right. because, and this is something at the beginning of the pandemic, when when lots of the teams I was working with were exclusively remote, I said, now is the perfect time to reset your norms about how you disagree, how you handle conflict. If you're going to a hybrid environment, now is the perfect time to reset norms about how mm. we will disagree. And Using some of the tools we talked about earlier, like the devil's advocate, make sure your devil's advocate is someone who's remote in that yes. hybrid meeting, right? Yep. So that, and and I can't tell you how important, and this is this has become trite, but I can't tell you how important technology is in these situations because if your remote team members can't hear, can't be heard, oh, yeah. don't have a great way to get people's attention. They're not reading the room. They can't see what's going on. Forget it. it. Oh my exactly. Gosh. And I, I actually one of the the tactics I, I I worked on a team that used this tactic that I thought was really great was to have a in person liaison for anyone who's remote in the meeting. So let's say, you know, you have ten people in the room and four people on video conference or on Zoom. So one of the 10 people in the room is the is the contact for anyone who's remote has to stay on slack has to keep their phone on them whatever it is and if they can't if they can't hear if they're not sure what how something's being received i mean this is i'm often remote with folks who are in person and i one of the biggest the hardest things for me is not being able to see their body language so when if i had that liaison i could text them and be like are people responding well to this idea right like someone who can help tell you what's actually happening in the right. room, I think is really helpful. So that's that's one thing I think and is really- And then rotate, rotate that person. Yes, acts, exactly, exactly. Um, and then always asking, like not not asking the people on who are remote to nod in agreement, but actually have them verbally, how do you feel about this idea, right? Are you on board? Because you haven't been able to to participate as much as us in the room. What what do you think of this idea? Do you does anyone have a disagreement they want to share? Like use that word. Like does anyone disagree? Does anyone right. see it differently? Right. Does anyone have a different perspective they want to raise? Like so many questions you can ask directly. And then the other thing I'll say, when you're not working synchronously with people, it's very easy to put off those challenging conversations mm. you have to have because yeah. You're not catching each other in the hallway. You're not picking up on like how they left the room in a huff or, you know, there's so much you're missing that I would just say that 
catch yourself, watch yourself, make sure you're not delaying these difficult conversations or these disagreements and and ask, you know, really checking in of like, am I just waiting till I'm going to be in the same place as that person? Am I sort of sick of the technology and the fact that I can only hear like 60% of what she says on her bad internet connection or what, you know, like what are the reasons, excuses you're using to put something off and are they valid? Yeah. Or is it, or do you sort of have to take the leap and really just dig in? All right. Such good things. Well, we're going to, you know, the, this is the tip of the iceberg on managing conflict in, in hybrid work. I think this is, uh, yeah. we look forward to tracking all these examples and hearing from people and how they do it and eating their half-baked Ben and Jerry's. So (laughs) looking looking forward to that. So to switch gears, there's one question on the podcast that regardless of the topic, I'd love to ask just to get to know a little bit more about you. So the question is, what do you do, Amy, in your life that makes you feel most like you? Oh, I love this question. And I wish I had prepared a little for for. for it's, you know it. what? It's better when you don't prepare. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny because we're talking about conflict. Like one of the things that I do is talk about like this. This to me feels like so talking about disagreements, just like I, I, I feel like my, my best self when I'm encouraging people to have these discussions. But that that feels like a cop out. So I'm not I'm not going to use that answer. Truthfully, I think lying in bed on Sunday mornings and reading a novel. Like I just I I read so much about management research and yeah. nonfiction books and but so much of the work you and I and and others do is really just about humans and how we interact and how uh, we we relate to one another and I think one of the best ways to study that or learn that or absorb that is through novels. And yeah, I just have had, it's one of my, I have a book group that I've been in. We always can note the, the how long we've been in the book group because someone had a baby the week after our first meeting. So <laughs> that that baby is now 14 years old. So we've been in the same book group for wow. 14 years. We only read fiction. And yeah, it's one of the things I look forward to most every month. Awesome. I love it. So what's what's the last book you read or what's one of your favorite ones in the last few months? So we just read The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois, which is a, a novel. It's like a fa- it's a family saga cool. from the 1600s to current day. And it traces the impact of racism and colonialism. And it's just a, a really it's a stunning novel, both stunning in that it's beautifully constructed and written, but also the stories are really tough. And yeah, it was a, it was a great Good. discussion. Right. It was a great book. I highly recommend it. I will check it out. All right. And then in closing, where tell us the title of your new book that's coming out in yes. September and where can people find out more about you? Yes. So the book is called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. It is out September 13th, but it's available for pre-order now if people want to get their copy early. And you can find me, you can find all my writing on um, hbr.org, or you can connect with me at my website, which is amyegallo.com. I have a newsletter if you want to stay in touch, and I'm always happy to hear from people who are interested in the same topics. All right. Well, thank you so much, Amy. Look forward to being in touch. And it's been so long since I've seen you in person. So one of these days, I hope we overlap at a conference or somewhere. It'll happen. It'll happen. It has to happen. Erica, thank you so much for having me. This has been a fun conversation. All right. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for tuning in to Left Door Own Devices. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. If you want to receive my monthly-ish update on all things human at work, or just want to say hello, email me at erica at ericakeswin.com. Stay safe, stay connected, and I'll see you soon.